Welcome to the International Bus Podcast, brought to you by Wordbee. I'm your co-host, Tanya Falkner. And I'm your co-host, Robert Rogi. And in today's episode, we have Ryan Foley with us. As a communications and body language expert, he helps teams to develop unique communication styles, trains law enforcement in body language, and prepares conference speakers to deliver impactful presentations. With his company, Foley Learning, he's helped people communicate smarter since 2014. How's it going, Ryan? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for having me on the podcast, Tonya and Robert. I'm excited to be here. Well, thanks to you. Yeah, we're excited too. It's kind of an exotic subject matter, I think, for the Buzz podcast, but it's something, you know, the things that you work on are some, there are things that everyone has to deal with. Yeah. I think in a professional setting and it's, uh, and it's also exciting because there are things that people can like really improve on. You know, so like you can't make yourself jump higher necessarily or well, you can actually, but to a point. Right. Right. But with this stuff, you can really, really work on it. So yeah. so why, why don't we start off? Why don't you just tell us about your work and the different categories of things that you do? OK, sure. So I'm a human behavior communication expert, otherwise referred to as a communications coach. That's how some people like to label it. But my job is to help people communicate exactly what they want to communicate because as you know communication isn't really what you intend to say necessarily but how it's taken by the people you're speaking to right and that can be a huge impact you can really have an impact on people's feelings thoughts their their worldview how they behave it's a very powerful thing this word communication and it is kind of something that we don't always give the importance to that we should and that we can have the biggest impact on the world around us if we get it just right and get a bit creative with it. So I help people get into that mode. So whether it's from the stage, whether it's talking one-on-one to somebody else in the family, work, or if it's bringing teams together that are very diverse and uh, maybe have very different ways of looking at things so that they can accomplish what they set out to do. So, you know, since our podcast is all about localization and adapting languages to different cultures, how does your work play into that? Maybe you can talk a little bit about intercultural communication? Sure, sure. I mean, when you think about the way we communicate, there's the words, there's what we say, right? Then there's how those words are interpreted by the environment that we're in. So if we're in an office and we say something versus if we're in the the living room at home and we say something with our family, the same thing we say might be interpreted differently depending on the environment. And then we take it up another notch to the level of culture. And that's when things get really interesting. I think uh, if you really think about some of the reactions you have to people when you're talking with them in conversation or maybe when you're sharing a meal with them, some of the things that you do every day, that's where you notice the biggest differences. And sometimes it can be pretty impactful. I remember when I was uh, when I was a little boy, I was always told by mum and dad, listen, right, eat with your mouth shut. We don't want to see all that food moving around your mouth. That's pretty disgusting. And so I grew up with this fear of ever eating with my mouth open, right? And then I would start to, if I visited somebody else's house, uh, particularly somebody from a different culture, and I would see food moving around inside their mouth as they're eating a meal, I would get this feeling, which now I know was a feeling of disgust, right? Like, oh, what is that? That's so gross. But it's a, if you think about any time that you felt that feeling, it's pretty powerful, right? 
It sort of mm -hmm. comes from the idea of something possibly being poisonous or yuck, you know, that, that's very strong. In fact, when apes make that face of disgust and they, they wrinkle their nose, you can see that the labial folds by the side of your nose go up when you're feeling disgust. Mm -hmm. For them, it actually blocks their sense of smell. Right? Oh, so it's connected to that disgust of smelling something gross. Mm -hmm. But that, let's get back to the story. I've been told that eating with my mouth open is disgusting. And so now I've connected that strong emotion with that. In another culture, that's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you might see it and it, it has no effect on you. But I, I think it's very interesting that, that such a small thing can evoke such a strong emotion. Mm, yeah, like I think a good example would be uh, slurping noodles like in, <laughs> in China or yes. Japan. You're literally like you're supposed to do it that way because it tastes better. I'm like, you know. Yeah. So <laughs> right. there's a cultural reason to do it that way, right? Mm -hmm. And what's fascinating is they call this reciprocity of perspective, right? Where we look at something and we say, oh, that's gross. Therefore, you're doing it to be gross. So there's bad motives behind why you're doing that. And we always mm -hmm. perceive things through the bias of our own upbringing and our own perception. Well, you know, obviously, I'm not talking with the people I work with about eating manners, mm -hmm. right? But just think about the things that you do every day, the way you sign off an email, the way you conduct a meeting, the way you talk about certain subjects, the way you compliment or give feedback. All of those things are sort of tinged or, or they're, they're a little bit different mm -hmm. in every group and then on a broader sense in every culture. And those are the things we most often ignore because those are the things that we have the most assumptions about. The most assumptions about what's right or wrong or how something should or shouldn't be done. And so we have the, the strongest reactions, but really mm -hmm. those are the things that I've noticed that when I've worked with groups that are very diverse, particularly with people from different cultures, that you'll see the biggest upsets. Mm -hmm. right? And those upsets can sometimes grow. And then as you know, when that, when that happens, that causes problems within the group. When performance drops, people start to worry about the motives of other people. And you get, all, you, you get this domino effect. Mm-hmm. Right. So what I've found is working like with very diverse teams, for example, if you can figure out some of those basic triggers to those emotional states, and you see this a lot in meetings, right? right. You, you can define expectations. Now, let's, let's say if you want to have a meeting in, say, China, the culture might be, well, look, our individual groups, we've already talked about how mm -hmm. we're going to solve an issue. So when we get to the meeting, it's not really about putting ideas out and coming to a solution. It's more about making official what was already discussed in private, which is very mm -hmm. different to Americans when they have a meeting, where, which is, okay, we're going to come together. Here's the problem. We're going to brainstorm, throw ideas out, and see if we can figure out a way to deal with this problem. But you can imagine right. someone coming from, say, China to America and then being invited to a meeting thinking that the whole purpose of the meeting is to spread the solution rather than come up with a solution, it's going to be very confusing. Mm -hmm. right? It might even start to judge the behaviors of other people. Someone might look at that person and say, well, what's he doing? He's not, he's not saying anything. Does mm -hmm. he have nothing to say? Is right. he not confident? You know? Yeah, that's interesting too, because mm -hmm. there's the interpretative side as well. It's like you're, you're trying to communicate interculturally or multiculturally with different people. 
Um, but then you also need to know how to read their signs too, right? So like someone's giving you feedback, like, like I'm imagining, like I live in Croatia and I'm imagining someone is like, uh, they're giving you feedback. They are very serious, you know, like, oh, we got to do this. 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 But they can be very positive actually about whatever you did. Right. So they're, mm. they're trying to be constructive and, you know, you can see signs that they're happy with what you delivered. Whereas with some other cultures, you might get like a very polite reply. And if you maybe knew how to read it, you'd realize they hated it. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, that, that's so common, isn't it? I think the, the biggest example used for that is in Japan, where a no is often uh, it's just not saying anything, mm -hmm. you know, uh, and knowing how to interpret that in context. Although I do think, and it'd be interesting to get your perspective on this because I've observed this as, as I've worked with different clients and in doing some research too, that when you have a very diverse team, you bring them together. At first, there tends to be a little drop-off in productivity. Mm -hmm. right? And you would expect that because there's different perspectives, there's different ways of dealing with the expectations of a certain situation like a meeting. Mm -hmm. But after that gets worked out, you end up with a jump in productivity because now we're getting these new perspectives, these new ideas, these new ways of looking at things that perhaps we hadn't thought of before. And really, that's where innovation comes from, right? That cross-pollination of ideas. But where we make a mistake sometimes, we can make a mistake in two ways. We can ignore the fact that people are very different and say, well, look, this is how I expect it. So this is, you know, this is your problem change for me. Or we could go the other direction where we say, well, look, okay, we're going to consider how everybody does it and everybody does it their own way. If you come from this culture, you know, you can do it this way, but we're going to do it. That doesn't work either mm -hmm. right? because now everybody is expected to have an understanding of all the nuances and all the expectations of everyone else. So if you really want to have a cohesive team that's really diverse, right, you've got to set very clear expectations about what's happening. Like so we'll go back to the meeting situation. Let's say you have some people that don't like to talk a lot at meetings. It's very different from what they're used to. By setting that very clear expectation, okay, in our company, our company culture is, when we have a meeting, okay, mm -hmm. we expect you to get notes together, to be prepared to provide an idea. You know, all those things that you wouldn't think to break down, all those expectations that you wouldn't think to make because you're so used to working with people of the same culture or who think about life in the same way, mm -hmm. right? Those are the things that you need to break down. And the only way you do that is by having conversations, getting to know each other mm -hmm. right, and figuring out. So once you set these expectations and you can prime them, well, let's say in the very situation I mentioned, you could send an email out to the group before you have your meeting and say, this is what we're going to discuss at this meeting. We need some ideas on how we're going to, going to market this particular product. Mm -hmm. Using a very vague example here. Right? Please send me back a few ideas. Mm -hmm. Now that person doesn't normally speak, can send those ideas back in an email and it's already been written, it's already been said. So during the meeting, when it's that person's time to speak, They've already formulated their ideas. They've already heard other people speaking and they can talk to their idea they've given. It also prevents something else that can happen mm -hmm. is, okay, I've got this idea or I've got this point I want to make, but three people have gone before me and their ideas were different. And now I start to doubt my own idea. Mm -hmm. I start to doubt the value that I bring. So I just choose to say nothing. 
Right, well, if right. I've already sent off the email, you know, I've already sort of formulated my idea and I know that this first round is about putting my idea out there. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to do it because that's what's expected of me. Mm-hmm. And really, that's what we want in life. We just want to know what's expected because we all want to be successful no matter what culture we're from. Mm-hmm. But do you think that, you know, what you described just now is sort of for this particular example the email conversation would kind of be the solution to it for people who might not want to communicate themselves in person. But do you think that email in that sense is the solution? It could be. I mean, and and many of our teams nowadays, particularly in the translation industry, where you're working with project groups, working on a particular project with one project manager and a team of translators or editors, from around the world, email is often the number one way that you will work like that. Mm -hmm. The Mm -hmm. good thing about using the email as kind of a primer is is it becomes sort of a step towards encouraging everybody within the same team to start demonstrating kinds of behaviors for efficiency's sake. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, often we think of cultures along the terms of how they're described generally, such as Well, this culture, like, for example, many of the cultures in East Asia, South America, Eastern Europe tend to be more high contact in the way they communicate. So you might say something, but how that's interpreted is more dependent on the context of who's talking, what stories do we share that I can refer back to, what shared experience do we have. And then there's other sort of low context communicating uh, cultures. Germany is a prime example, right? where you have very, if you're going to explain something, you have to explain it very logically that the focus is on the the, the rational explanation and sequence of events and and so on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that crossover is more difficult, actually, one way than the other. Obviously, Mm -hmm. if you're a low-context communicator, so you don't rely on context a lot, so it could be as simple as uh, you know giving instructions on how to put something together that's always kind of used as an example of low context communication mm-hmm. you know you you have these pieces take piece number 1 and put it with piece number very very logical in sequence well if i don't have the context that high context communicators have and they're saying to me things that reference stories or shared experiences in a culture that i'm not familiar with mm-hmm. I'm not going to get that information mm-hmm. right, unless I ask more questions, mm-hmm. right? Right. Where a high-context communicator can tend to understand a lot more coming from low-context communicators. So the, the English-speaking countries, Northern European countries, you know, uh, Germany and so on, they're going to understand instructions and from the low-context easier. So it's, it's a little bit easier to do mm-hmm. some things coming from one direction to the other Right, And so that's why setting up clear expectations can be very helpful because it's easier going that direction than trying to fill your head with all the context that, that everybody else has. Of course, that doesn't mean we ignore context or, or we ignore the different ways that, that cultures might look at something. But in a team where you're at a central location and you're working to achieve a certain outcome, it helps mm-hmm. to have your own unique culture, yeah. which is shared within that, that kind of takes precedence in that context. Okay, today we're working to achieve this goal. Mm -hmm. This is how we can all do it together. However, if you're working with somebody new or you're going somewhere else, then there's a different strategy 
Mm-hmm. Oh man, this is interesting stuff. Because I'm thinking about meetings. I think it's you really nailed it, which is that you have to choose something in a way. Like, uh, I mean, it doesn't have to be that narrow, but there should be a, a method or some kind of agreement about how you're going to run meetings or, like you said, what what's expected of people. I guess as someone who's from the States and who lives in Europe, like with Tanya too, Tanya, Tanya knows this, like for work that I have with WordBee, um, we have to build a lot of consensus with different uh, departments and different teams. And so there's a lot of persuasion that has to happen. And then also, like I have a, another project here locally in Croatia, and that also requires a lot of consensus building. And I would like to do what you say and say, okay, this is how we're going to do it, you know, because for example, my native style would be to run a meeting. Like if it's not a brainstorming session, then I would like to come with a presentation and really map things out very clearly, but also provide a lot of context. But that's not how people roll here. And if I make them do that, then I can tell that I'm going to be spending my points, like my managerial yes. points, right? Like I yes. only have so many points and it's like, okay, so I want to spend all these points on on this, you know, like in Croatia, people would rather just talk, you know, and they're like, oh man, not another one of those, you know, and then so you will talk, <laughs> it will take you twice as much time. Yeah. And, but, and you're, by your being adaptable i mean you're doing exactly the right thing because i mean let's face it if Mm -hmm. the majority of your team from one type of culture it makes sense to sort of skewer expectations of how things are done Mm -hmm. in the direction of the dominant culture because it's just easier that way that doesn't mean that you you uh, ignore so there's a great question that I think we should all have in our tool toolbox that we should use. And that, that's when we're, we're trying to build a really cohesive, diverse team in one location mm-hmm. or if we're trying to build a, a really strong team where we've got members in many locations. And that is to ask this question to somebody who's been in that group for a long time or somebody who understands most of the people in that group to, in, for a long time. If you're new, Mm-hmm. The question is, after anything of any importance, which is, is a meeting or, or some kind of discussion or, or some kind of procedure that you've enjoyed, is to, to ask, hey, uh, how do you think that went? Hmm. We might think, well, that's kind of a basic question. Why would we need to ask that? And all that does is it opens up our minds to somebody else's perspective who has more insight. Hmm. This we is, use this their is, feedback to calibrate. Mm-hmm. This is really interesting because, like, we've had that. Robert does that actually. I do that every <laughs> single time. You just said that, and I was like, "Geez, oh, I do that." Beautiful. I do it every <laughs> single meeting. I will say, "How did that go?" <laughs> yeah, very true. And, and but, how's but it going exactly, for you? <laughs> it's exactly what you said because you know we are already very different, and I guess we had to adapt as well. Because I'm very on point, I guess Austria and Germany are kind of similar in that sense. Whereas Robert is, you know, from the states. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm like a little bit of both, you know. Yeah, exactly. So there are the presentations, and there is the structure, and you come to the meeting prepared. But then there comes the context and the talking, mm-hmm. and you sort of have to find like the middle somehow and and make it work for both sides. And 
it's what mm -hmm. you said that most or a lot of teams, I guess, never really consider it and just try to force their way through. And think about what that does. It doesn't just give you intel. It doesn't just give you some insight that perhaps you didn't have before, right? So maybe you saw a behavior but didn't know why it was happening or what it meant. And now you're starting to get insight into mm -hmm. that. Like, mm -hmm. hey, yeah, uh, how do you think that meeting went? I mean, for me, I'm not sure it went too well because, you know, the, when the Japanese delegation went quiet and just looked at the contract for five minutes, that made me a bit nervous. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then your friend says, oh, don't worry. That's quite normal, right? That happens. That doesn't mean, it. oh, okay, great. Now I've been calibrated. Now I understand mm -hmm. to interpret that a little bit different. So there is that, but there's something else too. When you ask somebody, how do you think that went? I mean, what does that do for your relationship with that person? Mm -hmm. you know, it builds that relationship, right? Because you're asking them their opinion. You're asking them for insights, something that's going to help you, right? So now you're creating a better connection with this person. And we don't necessarily just ask that to one person because obviously that's not going to help us. If this is going to build relationship and give us intel that we're going to need to get the job done, then we should be asking that to others, even somebody who's new on the team. And a third mm -hmm. reason that helps is because now that new person starts to get used to that question. And what do they start doing? They start asking the same thing. Before you know, everybody on the team's asking that question and slowly everybody's getting calibrated because mm -hmm. we forget, you know, the, the thing that we want most of all is to be, yes, understood, but, but we want to get our job done. Mm -hmm. We want to be successful. No one wants to be considered the person on the team who's not doing a great job, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, so we want to, and, and a lot of times it's just, you know, culture and other things make us assume that the expectations are the same for everybody. And this just breaks through that barrier. Hey, as you know, we like to keep things mostly non-commercial around here. And we like to just stick to interviewing the guests about fascinating subjects. But we would like to take a moment to mention a little bit about WordBee Translator. WordBee Translator is the translation management system developed by WordBee over the last 10 years. So we are celebrating 10 years now. It's all in one system, so you can manage projects. It also has linguistic tools. It has tools for finance, business analytics, and it's been around for 10 years, so it does pretty much anything you want. Before working for WordBee, I also used WordBee Translator. One of my favorite things about it was actually the invoicing because it made it really easy to manage supplier invoices, create them, and just not have to deal too much with the financial side of things. But other customers appreciate other things, like for example, it's a native cloud technology, so it's really collaborative. You know, you can keep track of what's going on in there at uh, any, any moment in your project. It's easy to set up different job assignment methods. You know, you can check your stats at any time. You can see how your project managers are performing. You can see how your translators are doing. And yeah, it does pretty much everything you want. It ends up fitting your organization like a glove, as we say. So that was just a word about Wordbee Translator. Now, without further ado, back to the podcast. Yeah, I like the idea of calibration. Like Tanya would, I think I'm relentlessly into calibrating actually. Like I'm, I'm relentless about calibrating the team. <laughs> it's been in myself, <laughs> you know, like we have yeah, to be calibrated. 
Um, yeah, but it's difficult true. to calibrate with other departments. That's the hardest part is like people that you don't interact with day to day. Because it's one thing to ask your team, how did that go? You know, but like you, you use the example of the Japanese contingent that they looked at the thing they were supposed to sign for five minutes. And yeah, it, yeah. it's hard to ask them how it went. You right, know? it is. Um, so so what, what you do, and typically in that situation, if you've got an international delegation, you're working with an interpreter mm-hmm. or you're working with somebody else who speaks the language or who is connected. And if you're not, if you're not there with one of those people, we'll definitely get one of those people because this is important, <laughs> right? This is... <laughs> Yeah, with something as important as making a deal, mm-hmm. you definitely want to have someone in who's competent bilingually and biculturally. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so bringing them in helps. Now, you mentioned before about noticing things, noticing body language and, and things mm-hmm. like that. And that can vary quite dramatically uh, across culture in certain ways too. But I think that noticing things can help with calibration as well. Mm-hmm. The only difference is in the way that most people use it now, I feel like, and, and, you know, it'd be interesting to hear your perspective on this, that you look on YouTube or on the internet, and I'm guilty of providing this kind of advice too, right? Where there's advice given on how to deal with a specific communication issue. How can you mm-hmm. tell if somebody's lying? How do you know if somebody's not interested in what you're saying? Or, and, and there's all these tips out there, but the tips are given in very small chunks, a minute or two, Right, mm-hmm. And then we get this insight and we think, great, I know what's going on now. And we still make the mistake of, ah, I see that behavior. Therefore, you're thinking such and such. So I'm going to counter with this or I'm going to – the trick about noticing things is when you see something that might be a red flag or might be an indicator that there's something more mm-hmm. or maybe you just uh, – you feel, hang on, there's something different here. There's something I'm not getting here. Mm-hmm. is rather than thinking we're Sherlock Holmes and, and you know we can sort of make an assumption about what's going on and that's going to lead us in the right direction, again, it's back to communication. It's back to asking questions, right? Even if it's something very awkward. I mean, uh, one, one example I like to give is, you know, imagine you're going to the United Arab Emirates. Uh, and this was a, a very famous example that was used forget his name now, but anyway, you're going to the United Arab Emirates to meet a business partner, somebody that you've talked with on email, you're very friendly, it's going to be great. You arrive at the airport and he comes up to meet you, right? And uh, comes very close, stands very close to you. So we talk about proxemics, how close people stand together. I says, how are you? It's nice to meet you. You can smell the breath, everything. So super close, right? And maybe you're from, from America or, or Australia where we like to have, have a bit of personal space, you know. You take a step back because you're thinking in your head, well, hang on, this is uncomfortable. This, isn't, this, this is giving me a bad feeling. I take a step yeah. back. Yeah, but you can't take this then, step back. Because <laughs> that's a signal too. Yeah, now, yeah. now he, we'll call him Omar. Just as, I like having names, right? So Omar says, hmm, well, that's a bit strange, but takes a step forward again. <laughs> What's he, he's trying to keep that closeness. Why? Because he's thinking, you know, we have a good relationship. I want to have a good relationship. Normally, when I have a good relationship with somebody and we're speaking, mm-hmm. we stand this close. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But now you take another step back and Omar's like, what the heck is going on with this guy? Yeah. But do we not have the relationship? But what both people are doing, you know, maybe maybe uh, the guy from America is thinking, oh, you know, why is he – to use an American expression, why is he all up in my face? Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Right, which is yeah. seen as aggression or, or some other negative trait. But what we're doing is by moving back, we're trying to send a signal, but we, we're expecting them to guess why we're doing that. Mm-hmm. And so in the end, Omar thinks, well, he's rude. And then the guy from America, well, he's rude. And, and we both yeah. come to the same decision, but nothing's solved. Whereas one question, like, hey, Omar, yeah. I, I notice you're standing very close. I'm not used to it. We don't do this in America. Why is that happening? What, what is that all about? Oh, well, now I'm learning something about the culture. And by the way, people love talking about their culture. They love especially Mm -hmm. talking about these little procedures for meeting each other Mm -hmm. and dealing with things. If if they're aware of them. Well, (laughs) yeah. But even just bringing awareness to it causes Mm -hmm. this little jump of joy, this little excitement. Because just ask my my mom. Originally from Australia, we came to America many years ago. My whole family, and uh, it's one of the favourite topics my mother loves talking about is all the differences between Australian and American culture. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, well, we don't shake our hands every time we meet, and you know, it's just a lo- people love doing it. But when it accomplishes something, like in this case. You might tell Omar, yeah, like in, in America, that means you're being aggressive. Well, now Omar understands why you took a step back. And if you do it in the future, it's not a big deal. And, and the same going the other direction. So that question is important. I just learned to hang in there. That's what I did. I just <laughs> like, I realized that. So I don't know when I realized this. It was probably a long time ago, but I, I realized that there was actually like a, it was a positive thing that people wanted to stand so close to me. Uh, like you said, they wanted to be closer or, or it was a positive thing. Right. And I just kind of learned to hang in there and it is so weird. And I'm, when it's going on, I'm like, okay, I'm like, I hope they don't realize how uncomfortable I am. <laughs> well, um, well, that's, you know, but that's very smart. I mean, cause what you're doing is you're considering the context, right? So for example, take the context of Omar and the American at the airport. The context is we've had a good relationship over email over the phone, mm-hmm. you know, why would there all of a sudden be grief? Mm-hmm. There shouldn't be, right? So yeah. that, that should trigger. But what happens is our emotions, which are essentially just thoughts that create feelings, so we emote before we feel, mm-hmm. right? They're little programs that run. My emotion has caused me to feel something. And when you feel something, it seems very real. And if that's a negative feeling, mm-hmm. well, now we attribute negative motives. Mm-hmm. to that person whereas if we if we sort of keep out of our reptilian brain and we in we use our critical thinking a little bit we can often put things in context and break through a lot of those even without asking the question however asking the question can yield sometimes some very interesting results like they might mm-hmm. give us a few other tips that can be helpful right. uh, moving forward but even you know the person who is in the position of asking that question That's a cultural thing again. Some people are very outgoing and they would just straight out ask. And others are probably like Robert said, maybe you're like, whoa, you know, or you just go along and play along. Yeah. But, you know, not everyone would ask that question. They wouldn't. And they probably should. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, assuming that the situation allows for it, if you're in a rush or it's an emergency, you're not always going to have that option. But you don't always have to ask it the same way. You know, it could be asked in a curious way. Hey, I noticed you do this. Why does that happen? I've seen it happen with other people, right? Now it's Mm -hmm. a curious conversation. Or it could be, I want to avoid causing upset. Hey, look, here's some things I've been, I noticed you do it and I noticed other people do it. We don't do it in Luxembourg, right? We we don't do that. Mm -hmm. Uh, 
So I want to know why do we do that here? Mm-hmm. What's the purpose? How can I use this properly? How can I make sure I don't make a mistake? Should I use that as someone who's not from here? You know, asking those it's all about if you're inquisitive, if you're excited, if you're wanting to learn something, when you see somebody who's in that state, you're drawn to them. Mm-hmm. You want to be a part of it. It's exciting. And sometimes we give people that it's actually something that they can share with us and it's a good opportunity. So even if it goes against our personality, mm-hmm. it's going to help in several ways. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, it's interesting because I know there are certain personalities that would be like hesitant to adapt their communication styles to other people's or cultures because they're afraid they won't like get what they want. Basically, if that makes any sense, like uh, sure. I'm going to be like I am and then I'm going to get my way you know, and uh, I guess that my my advice as you know, I've lived abroad for a long time, like most of my life now. And well, not most of it, but like a third of it. And uh, my advice would be like, if you do adapt the way that you communicate, it doesn't mean you're going to get less. You can actually get more. You can build better consensus. You can be more persuasive. You know, you can have better results, all of those things. And I, I think like if you're working with a multicultural team and your decision is to be resolutely, you know, the way you are, whatever that is, is I think it's probably not a, not a great idea. That's yeah, just, no, well, you're right on that because I can see where that comes from. Right. Because if you've done something a thousand times mm-hmm. and it always works, right. And now you're in a new setting and it's very difficult to pull away from something that has always worked for you. Mm-hmm. It is. It really means putting yourself out there. So you have to expect some kind of discomfort. You have to expect that you're going to make mistakes. You have to expect that there are different ways of accomplishing the same goal. And you see this in politics too. For example, dealing with crimes with criminals in a certain way. You know, you can be very tough. You can put very tough measures, or you can rehabilitate. Now, without going into specifics. Oftentimes, the rehabilitation method yields better results, but we're so connected often in, in political circles to, mm-hmm. oh, we're going to get tough on crime, we're going to make sure they're in jail forever. You know, it, it really shows up uh, everywhere, but being flexible can get us what we want. And that's what we really have to think about. Do we just want to do a behavior for the sake of, of doing a behavior? Mm-hmm. Or do we yeah. want a specific result? Yeah. You know, while we were talking about body language, I saw on your blog that you were talking about nonverbal cues for correct interpreting. And I was wondering if there are specific cues that you can share with us or if that's, you know, not specific things that you can name. Yeah. If you're looking at body language, for example, think of it as a, as a channel of communication. So we have several channels. The, we have our, the words we use, the verbal mm-hmm. channel. We have a verbal style, how we choose to say something. You can be uh, aggressive. You can be passive aggressive. You can use different structures to say something. There's the tone of your voice, which often carries the feeling and attitude of what you're saying. And in the body language, the body language can be used to both describe things and to show emotion and feelings. And you think about that as interpreters. We're listening to the words, 
And I say we because uh, for many years I was a sign language interpreter in the United States. I went to college and hmm. studied uh, management and uh, became a, a nationally certified sign language interpreter and, and worked in that field for many years. So this is where this is coming from. Another area, I learned a lot about body language, actually. Mm-hmm. But getting back to the point, if you're an interpreter, you have to be aware not just of the words, but the context that those words are given in. And so that means looking at some of these other channels. Right. With gestures, for example, there are some gestures, what we call them illustrators. They describe something. Right. There are others that are more used for showing emotion. Right. Mm-hmm. So one of those might be sort of the baton, which is if you've ever seen a politician, you know, they mm-hmm. bang their hand out in front of them and it's usually on a beat. I say we do this. Right. Mm-hmm. Or Bill Clinton back in the day. I did not have sexual relations with that, right? So he's using the baton, he's moving his, his mm. hand. So when we see people use gestures like that and we're interpreting, we might increase the intensity. Or in other words, that emotion needs to come across, right? Because we interpret meaning for meaning, a dynamic equivalence. Mm-hmm. And so that needs to be in our interpretation. And that can come across in the tone that we use because tone also carries emotion and shows attitude. So we need to be observant to those things. But there are other gestures that actually have a a correlation to a word or a concept in another language. Famous example of that would be thumbs up, the peace sign, the middle finger, as it's Mm -hmm. used in, in America, right? The middle finger. Here in Australia, the peace sign is palms out, but when you flip it around and and Mm -hmm. you're you're sticking up two fingers with the palms facing you, so the back of your hands Mm -hmm. facing out, that's insulting, right? And that could be translated very easily (laughs) into words. So, and this isn't very really talked a lot about in the literature, Mm -hmm. but what would an interpreter's responsibility be if the interpreter saw a gesture that carried a meaning, a specific meaning, but chose not to interpret that because it didn't come through the verbal channel. I mean, would you really be interpreting meaning for meaning? We have Mila, just a little background. Ludmila from MasterWord introduced us to Ryan, and she's coming on the podcast and she knows stuff about interpreting. And I would really like to ask her this exact question. Oh, good. Yeah, definitely. Definitely talk to her about that. She's a real expert. She's definitely had a lot of experience doing business internationally. She can speak to that specifically from the the perspective of someone who's involved in interpreting and translation. Yeah, because I don't know the answer, actually. Like, I I don't know what the the interpreters should do in that situation, but it it is information. You know, it is. Should... It is information that's there, right? Mm-hmm. And and there's body language has been responsible for terrible th- even in the court system. I remember reading an article about a judge who was attending a training on body language, and realized, oh my goodness, you know, in different cultures, people use eye contact differently, mm-hmm. and in some cultures, it's a sign of respect to someone who has authority over you not to make extended eye contact. But in America, if you're on trial and you are asked to give specific statements, there's an expectation that you're going to make eye contact with the person you're speaking to, be it the judge Mm -hmm. or so on. And this judge said, I look back on some of the people that I sentenced Mm -hmm. and I remember thinking they don't even care. 
They don't even care about what's happening because they're not even making eye contact. Mm-hmm. And she felt terrible, mm-hmm. right? So we can't ignore this. This is people's lives are often at mm-hmm. play here, you know, with, with these nonverbals. We don't give them the attention they should. In among the Nepalese, there's an expression that they use sometimes where they'll grab both of their earlobes at the same time, which means, oh, I didn't mean to offend you. It wasn't my intention. So right. yeah. do you interpret that? You know, if somebody mm. makes that very obvious gesture, but it's not understood culturally, it's outside of the cultural understanding of the person you're interpreting for, I would say yes. You know, yeah, if you yeah, see I think so something too. that contributes, you should verbalize that or it should come across in the affect in the interpretation. Right. Almost like uh, subtitles for hard of hearing people where, where it says like car starting or noise, car pulling away or yeah. like it adds in these yeah. sound, these contextual yeah. sounds, almost yeah. like that, except in, in interpreting. But I think what happens is we get into this bias because we're verbal creatures. We think of language, we think of voice, but that's not really what communication is all about. That's one aspect of communication. And that's certainly where we're going to get a lot of the content, the majority. Mm -hmm. But it's not, you know, that content can be given a, a tint or be given an emotional charge by the body language, by the tone, by the structures that are used or the form that it's put in. It's fascinating. And, I, and that's one thing I love about talking to interpreters and translators, because they really understand this concept of meaning as being something that's embedded in context. That's fascinating, especially, you know, you before you mentioned the judge, you think about, okay, like interpretation and body language, we know it's really important, but we were talking more in the sense of business meetings and closing deals. It's important, but it's usually not like, no lives depend on it, I guess. But when you, when you talk about the judge and you realize mm-hmm. what consequences you could have if you're not aware of body language, it's huge. Mm. And... For people listening to the podcast, you can't see this, but we're actually on a video call with Ryan, and it's fascinating watching his body language. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it really yeah, is. Because you you use a lot of gestures, and uh, yeah, there was a time when my life when I also used a lot of gestures, especially when I was in in Southeast Asia. Like I used a lot of gestures, but nowadays I don't use so many. And well, I you think, tend to acclimatize, uh, huh? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. And but like with Tanya, Tanya and I, we we actually communicate very similarly, right? Like we do these online meetings and I think we can talk for an hour and we can laugh and we can make many, many different points and neither of us will make a single gesture. <laughs> like like we yeah. this is, just goes on and on a little yeah, more gestures. Yeah, and but, it's uh, and, and it's perfectly fine. We can communicate. You can have no arms and, and communicate perfectly well, right? Because We have other channels. All of those channels can really convey everything. We just like to, if we're like humans with a graphic equalizer, every channel we can turn up or down. Some people are more gestural in the way they communicate. Other people rely more on their words. I mean, think about different comedians, stand-up comedians that you watch. Some, they speak slower, but their words, they carry so much weight. Right, then the structure, how they say it, that's what leads to the laughter. Whereas other people, they create humor in the space around them by their body language. George Carlin, very famous uh, stand-up comedian, he said that in his mind, his favorite jokes were the ones 
where the punchline wasn't spoken, but rather demonstrated in the body language. So if a tip, if you really want to experiment with how you might ramp up the energy in these different channels, look at the differences between stand-up comedians. They're a great example. But whatever your style is, you should amplify your strengths. And then when I work with speakers, for example, when they're giving a big talk, the first thing we want to do is find out, well, what's your speaking style? Because you don't want to tell that person, oh, look, you need to use more gestures because now they're going to be thinking, I've got to add this extra technique, this extra skill, and that takes away from their authenticity and it takes away from their power because they're trying to add something that's not really who they are or that they had no intention of of adding before. So you'll see that a lot in in some of the basic feedback you get when you're doing public speaking. A lot of it addresses behaviors that aren't really congruent with who the person is. And I find that part fascinating. You know, finding out who somebody really is and then letting them speak from that very powerful position on the stage has a huge impact on the audience and the audience doesn't even know why. All they know is... When I look at this person, when I see their body language, listen to the way they speak, hear their words, it's all congruent. It all makes sense. When it's incongruent, we perceive that. Even if we don't know body language, we perceive that we just may not know what's going on. So if you ever looked at a speaker, you're like, oh, it's a bit awkward, but I can't quite nail it. The chances are maybe what they're saying and what they're doing are opposite or incongruent. Like, for example, I'll go back to the baton that we were talking about, that, that gesture, which is sort of that bouncing gesture in front of you with your hands. That's often used to, to really elevate the emotion of the situation or really emphasize a point. But if it's genuine, it looks a little bit different than if somebody is just doing it because they've been told to do it. And here's a little nuance. I think you'll find it interesting. And you can even see it in the video if you go back and watch Bill Clinton with the Monica Lewinsky trial where he says, I did not have, just watch his hand. And this is what you look for. If somebody is genuinely feeling it in the moment, you'll notice that that the bounce will happen just fractionally before what they're saying. But it looks very different if it happens fractionally after, right? That means it's more an intentional move and not really motivated by the feelings of the moment. Like just imagine if someone says, listen, listen, when I tell you this, you know, they're getting very aggressive. When it hits right before, it looks different to this. Listen, listen to what I'm telling you. So the listeners can't see the video, but did you see how the delay of the sign takes away from the power of what's being said? Mm, Yeah, yeah. the second way looks like the way actors do it in movies, actually. Yeah, I wish people people can't see this. Actually, this is a podcast, but uh, (laughs) but do you have a video or something where people can see that on your website? Or Um, I'm not sure if I describe that particular thing, but I've got plenty of videos that uh, describe how you can see little things in communication that will be helpful. Helpful to spot when somebody may not being truthful, not that they're necessarily lying. There's some uncertainty in what they're saying. And so that's a cue to dig a little bit deeper, right? Mm-hmm. So our goal is to build relationships and get to the truth, not catch somebody in a lie. So there's, I've got, there's plenty of videos on my, on my website or on the YouTube channel. I'm happy to share that link with you later on. Cool. So people can, can get sure. a few of those um, tips. Just for our listeners, what is your website link? Oh, it's uh, foleylearning.com. 
So Foley, F-O-L-E-Y, that's my last name. And then learning, what we all love to do, dot com. So like this has been a fascinating conversation, but we've kind of bounced around. So like I I presume that when you're running a program with someone or with a team or with a company, you must have some method or there's like several different classes in a row. Well, usually we're working on one specific issue. Like a lot of the things related to communication and performance, for example, in a group come down to one topic that most people don't really think about as being a powerful, for example, how you give feedback and the environment that you create to give feedback in. And that doesn't matter if it's positive or negative feedback. Some people don't like using those terms because it sort of tinges the way it, it sounds, but yeah, let's keep it simple. Right? They, they both can be used, but how you deliver it, what you say, and the information you get back from that helps recalibrate your system, meaning how your team operates. And just with a few changes, you can see a dramatic difference in the way that a team communicates within the team and even between teams or between departments just by how they communicate feedback. And it's not being nice. It's not the old sandwich method, which is so popular in a lot of English-speaking cultures where you say something nice, then deliver the the blow, then say something nice again. That's so cliche and terrible. It's not about that. And it's about understanding what people want. And I found that that's been very helpful to many of my clients is just learning that one piece has been a huge change. But before you can determine what it is to focus on, I like having conversations. If I'm being asked to come in and and work with a company to improve customer loyalty or customer service or to improve communication between departments, it's important for me first to talk to the people Mm, in these, not just the people in charge, but some of the others that are in there. And I I go through some questions that I like to ask and listen to their responses. And, And by getting all that feedback from different people, it really paints a nice high resolution picture of what's going on. And then based on that picture, you can really go in and focus just on the issue at hand. And I mentioned feedback because I've seen that one come up many, many times. Mm, it's really uh, critical. Yeah. As a solution, yeah. I really like the idea of talking to the individual team members too about about stuff because, hmm. well, just with feedback specifically, like I've known people that will give very specific feedback to people, almost too specific at times. And like I myself, like sometimes I give really specific feedback, but sometimes I try not to. It it, it depends on who I'm working with. Sometimes I don't want people to get used to that. If that makes any sense. Like I want them to find the the solution. So like the, the granularity with which you provide feedback can vary by people's personalities or Mm. who you're working with or who's providing the feedback. So like, I guess you would have to speak with the different team members to find out how they are, what their tendencies are, right? There is that. I mean, there is some adjustment based on personality, but really everybody wants the same thing, right? Remember, they want to do Mm -hmm. really well. And if, if people complain about anything, it's usually that they're not getting enough feedback, right? And true, negative feedback can be a little painful at first, but when it's delivered correctly and it comes from a certain angle, from a certain perspective, and it's embedded in an environment where 
feedback is given at a nice ratio. So it's a really interesting Harvard study, and then I could probably send you some more information on later on, where they compared how people performed based on different types of feedback. And when you give positive feedback, five or six to one ratio to negative feedback, people perform five times better than people who get no feedback at all. If you get some feedback, but not with that ratio, they also perform better, just not this dramatically better. You said so five or six to one, right? Positive five or to six negative. To one. And you might think, oh man, I don't want to tell people nice things all the time. You know, like they're just, they're going to do their job. I've got this expectation. Well, positive feedback, when you see somebody going above and beyond, like they're not doing just what makes them comfortable, but maybe they did something a little bit extra. And it might not be for the company, it might be for you. Or it might be for somebody else on the team. Like, for example, a great way to give positive feedback that also focuses on behavior or expectation, not on how I like to do things. Or it might be to say something like, hey, Robert, yesterday when you completed that project and I wasn't able to get you those numbers, you got them yourself. You saved me having to stay back at work another couple of hours last night. Hey, thanks. I really appreciate that. Bam. Leave. That's positive feedback because you've commented on the behavior and it's not some fluffy nonsense like oh you're such a great worker and it's really great having you around or you're so smart oh terrible terrible feedback right you're commenting on a specific behavior you spoke about exactly what they did but you also talked about how it helped you or how it helped the team and it's not in a cheesy way it's very it's something that seen right away and then Something that a lot of people get wrong when it comes to giving feedback is they think, oh, and how is this going to be received? And they, mm -hmm. they pause after they do it and they wait, mm -hmm. which makes people nervous. Like, oh, okay, what are you waiting for? You want me to say <laughs> thanks back? What's going on? But if it happens in, you know, think about in real conversation, you know, when you're with your family, mm -hmm. oh, thanks for taking the trash out yesterday. Oh, I totally forgot about it. Then you get back on the conversation, right? Mm -hmm. But what does that do? If you're getting that kind of feedback at a six to one ratio based on other feedback, which by the way, negative feedback doesn't mean that it's hurtful. It's just showing people where they mm -hmm. might be outside of a window of expectations. And we don't have time to go into that now, but I'd love to talk about that at some point. It's, just, it's a mm -hmm. fascinating thing. But when you get this rhythm, what happens is you end up with a self-calibrating team. Mm -hmm. Because expectations become very clear. People feel good about the relationship they have with each other and you end up getting a better performance. Where's our ratio at, Tanya? Where do you think we're at of the ratio? I have no idea. We should start counting. <laughs> yeah. We need a board but, over here. But I almost feel <laughs> I almost feel like this is I have the impression that this is getting better with like newer business styles or business cultures and in the older ones. It's more like, you know, you're supposed to do that. I don't need to compliment you on that or I don't need to give you feedback on that. I don't know. Is that what you see with your clients well, as well? My experience in talking to people about this is the misunderstanding of when to give feedback and what positive and negative feedback is. Mm -hmm. You know, if somebody is just doing what's expected and they're, they're obviously going out of their way to do nothing more than what's expected of them, uh, that, that's mm -hmm. not probably somebody that's going to be in the team for very long. I mean, let's be honest, but you're not there to complete. If you reinforce behaviors that are not on that edge of, of challenge and comfort for them, then you're not motivating any positive behavior. 
If anything, mm. you're reinforcing negative behavior, right? So mm. a lot of people say, I don't want to say thanks for something that's expected. Fine. But I guarantee you, if you really look, there's something there. Did they get you lunch one day when you had to stay back for a meeting? Mm-hmm. Hey, oh, thanks for getting me that lunch. I was going to go without. Appreciate that. Bam. Yeah. Done. It's not always about the big, oh, you won that that contract. Thank you. You know, that was great job on that RFP mm-hmm. proposal. Mm-hmm. No, it's not about that. Right. Yeah. So right. as long as we know, just start noticing those things, you know, and, and that'll It'll also make when you do give negative feedback, it'll make mm-hmm. it so much easier because they understand the place that it's coming from is a place of, you know, I care about you. I care about our team. I care about the output that we're doing, mm-hmm. that we're putting out there. I mean, all of those are positive. Right. Yeah. You know, and re- related to what Tanya said about like traditional, oh, I don't know how to phrase it exactly, but maybe like traditional management or where maybe they're not caring so much about these sorts of things and they are just like, yeah, okay, this is your job and I'm paying you to do it. I, I don't even know if that's the case that it has anything to do with age or or how traditional something is, but it kind of makes sense because I, I think that the pace of change is so much faster now that you know your average employee in almost any any role has continuous change of their job description, their title, the tools they use. It's... You know, every, year over year, this it's always so different, and and I think the pace of change was slower in the past, yeah. Maybe, and maybe people need that extra motivation just to keep up. Maybe, yeah. Well, it, here's the thing: is it's not a direct motivation, right? Like you're not there mm-hmm. as a motivational speaker, you know, giving mm-hmm. people back rubs, saying, "Okay, come on, you got this." You know, mm-hmm. it's not really like that. It's just, I saw what you did there. That was brilliant. That was great. Now, how does that register? That registers mm-hmm. as, ah, oh, that feels good. That was good. That mm-hmm. makes sense. A lot right. better than a back rub. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> of course. <laughs> yeah. You got that famous one of George Bush giving a, a back rub to Chancellor Merkel years ago. That was uh, <laughs> so, yeah, not a good move. Not awkward at all. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, I, th- I just think it's all fascinating. The way we communicate and the way that we perceive communication are two different things. And I think, you you know, no matter what your intuition is, it could always be trained. It could always get better. And you might feel very strongly about something, but the only way that you'll change that feeling is to create a new pattern that gives you some result, some feedback to yourself that let you know where things are going. Like, for example, if you feel that you're, okay, look, I have to give this person feedback, negative feedback every day. Well, that's some intelligence here. If you know how to give feedback and you're doing it right and you've created the right environment, well, now this information is useful. Why am I giving them too much negative feedback? Is it because I don't have them working on things that use their strengths? Is it because I'm the window? Because with negative feedback, you only talk about it when somebody is outside of a normal window of operation, right? And and typically that there's some leeway in there. So only if you get something very extreme or if they're outside of that window for a period of time, you might give feedback. So if you're giving feedback often, then is it because that window is not properly defined, right? Or is it because they're in the wrong position? Is it because I'm not seeing something that I should be seeing? 
Mm-hmm. So this is very important intelligence. And, and by understanding that, making adjustments, testing those adjustments, seeing the change in the feedback pattern over time, what you're doing is you're building a stronger, more efficient team that just, just performs better and people are happier in it. You know, They're not going to walk around going yippee all day long, but they're going to feel like I'm able to manage myself. I know what's expected of me. I know that when I go above and beyond, it's appreciated and I feel like I'm making a difference. Oh, that's interesting stuff. Also the form of the feedback too, right? For example, I was just like last week, I was working on a legal contract and uh, I had to return it to the lawyers. And so like I, I had like two choices, maybe three choices, right? Like I could make a list of bullet points in an email or I could make comments in the document or I could edit the document directly using the track changes, right? And right. like if if it was for work, it, like with a team member, I would use comments because I don't want to make the changes for them. Um, you know, I want them to understand what the what the changes were and why, and uh, and maybe not make every single change like down to a sentence or a comma mm-hmm. or whatever. But with the lawyers, I would use the track changes because that's not my goal there. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> a different team. Sense. It's a different dynamic, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Are you not yeah. trying to teach your lawyers? <laughs> no, I don't, I don't care. As long as they do it fast, man. No, lawyers like, already know everything. There's no need. <laughs> with, with lawyers, it adds up quickly. Yeah, so like uh, you have to keep mm. them fast. <laughs> right. But it is a fascinating thing, isn't it? And, and uh, you know, you do so many things without even knowing why you're making those adjustments. And probably because you're such, uh, you know, both of you have seen have experienced things in different cultures, in the professional world in particular, that you've made adjustments that have that you've seen have given you positive results, but it falls right in line with a lot of the ideas that we're talking about. Well, guys, we could talk about this for hours, but we're running out of time, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> I think we have to wrap this up, but it was super interesting. Thank you so much, Ryan, for discussing this with us and being on our podcast today. Well, thank you. I've had a great time. That's right. Uh, and uh, for all the listeners, uh, you know, you can work with FoleyLearning.com and Ryan will help you with all of your team communications and presentation skills. And uh, I myself am starting to think, well, maybe, yeah, because I, I might be having some presentations coming up here. Like I'm not a very good public speaker. Well, I'm not bad. Like I, I did it in high school, you know, in the States we have that, but uh but it, I get very nervous. So like in, in, in with teams, I'm, I, I think I'm probably like a really good communicator, I think. But like in front of people, I hate it. Like even at a table, like at a dinner party or something. Yeah, we can work on that. No problem. Cool. It's in June. So there's some time yet to work <laughs> All right, on this. Well, we, yeah, we could talk about it. Uh, I, I think I already have some ideas about your speaking style. So yeah, that would be great. Well, it's been great. I've really enjoyed the time with you. Thank you so much. Cool. That was another episode of the International Bus Podcast. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks. Thank you, guys. 